Let's take our Bibles this morning and look again in the book of Philippians. This morning, Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Hopefully they are familiar verses to you. I've been talking about serving Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Philippians 1, 27 through 30 and talked about what our cause is. Our cause is the gospel, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what drives us and defines us, that we live for the glory of Christ. We live for the gospel. This morning, I want to continue to talk about serving Jesus Christ, but this morning, I want to focus on our character, who we need to be. We know what our cause is, but what do we look like? How do we live? What is our character as we serve Jesus Christ? Listen to our text this morning. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is one of those wonderful texts on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It has great theology. But like many of those texts that give us this deep theology about the person of Christ, it is there to point us to Christ in such a way that we will become like him, that we will see him as our model, as our ideal, that we will pattern our ethic in life, our character in life after him. The heart of our text is the phrase, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. 
Some theologians would say that Jesus, in his incarnation, he emptied himself of his deity, that he was purely man, only man in his incarnation, that he was no longer God. He emptied himself of his deity. We will see in our text that that is clearly wrong. That is not what our text is saying, but it is important to understand what it means that he emptied himself because our text tells us, let this mind be in you. So whatever Jesus did in emptying himself serves as a model for us as we empty ourselves. I find it striking that what the New Testament calls us to, to model Jesus, to be empty of self, is sort of in contrast to the way our society is today. There are psychologists, cultural analysis, philosophers, who talk about people in the world we live today who suffer with what they call the empty self. But when they talk about the empty self, they're not talking about what Paul is talking about when Jesus emptied himself. And when the Bible calls us to humble ourselves and empty ourselves, they're actually talking about something that is the exact opposite. The empty self is actually someone who is so full of himself. J.P. Moreland, who is a well-known apologist and philosopher, defines the empty self in a number of ways. Let me share with you just a, a couple of his thoughts. He says the empty self is characterized by what he calls inordinate individualism. That is, the empty self does what is good only when it is good for himself. He's an inordinate, a very strange individualism because everything about him is for him without regard to its effect on others. That's part of the empty self. He says another part of the empty self is what he calls infantileism. That is, you're a baby. Demanding that my needs be met rather than meeting the needs of others. It's all about me. You maybe have seen the sort of spoof on one of the worship songs that is often sung. It's all about you. It's all about you. Because that's what worship should be. All about God. All about Jesus Christ. But the spoof is, the reality in many Christian lives is, it's sung, it's all about me. It's all about me. It's what J.P. Moreland calls infantilism, demanding that my needs be met. He also says that the empty self is marked by narcissism, pure self-interest rooted in self-infatuation rather than serving others. He says it's marked by 
passivity. And by that he means entertain me, amuse me, don't ask me to be involved, just satisfy me. Another way he describes it is that we, the empty self lives by its senses. It seeks the gratification of senses, their feelings, rather than the development of their mind. He says the empty self has no interior life. There's nothing going on deep inside. All they care about, the empty self, is how do you see me? You know, how good do I look? How well do I dress? How much stuff do I have? The empty self is concerned about the exterior only without any development of the inner man. And then he says, seventhly, the empty self is just marked by busyness. Focused on activity, but rarely reflecting deeply on their soul. It's all around us, the empty self. It's all about me. Even churches today, churches are thinking of, you know, how do we meet the consumer interests of the people that are in this world? How do we satisfy their felt needs without thinking, how do we be faithful to the word of God and meet their deepest need? How do we address the mind? How do we reach the soul? We live in a world that is full of empty selves, and ironically, the empty self is full of self. It is all about me. The Bible calls us not to the empty self. The Bible calls us to the emptying of self. This is the character of a servant of Jesus Christ. In his words, in Jesus' words, he said, if you will save your life, you will lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you will save it. A true servant is one who empties self. He uses Christ as his example, though he may have every right to choose a different path of self-interest. He chooses instead, instead a path of servanthood. He wants to be like Jesus Christ. So as we look at our text this morning, how do we develop this gospel character of a servant of Jesus Christ? How do we do that? There's three things I want us to consider this morning from the verses we've read. First of all, we must know who we really are. If you don't know who you are, if you're struggling to find out who am I, then you will never live as a servant of Jesus Christ because you're still focusing on self, trying to figure out who you are in this world. The, the text that we read in uh, the beginning of Philippians chapter 1 has a number of those if clauses. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort, if any participation in the Spirit. But I remind you that this is one of those ways in the Greek language 
where it's really not a question. The reader of this Greek text would understand what Paul is saying in this way. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there is any comfort from love, from the love of God, and there is, if there is any participation, any fellowship in the Spirit of God, and there is, Paul's not raising the question of the possibility of these things being in the lives of believers. He's saying these are the realities in your life. If you've been born of the Spirit of God, if you've been united to Christ by faith, if in you have identified in his death and his resurrection so that you are now alive in him, then as a believer, you have encouragement in Christ. As a believer, you have comfort in the love of God. As a believer, you fellowship daily with the Spirit of God who lives in you. This is who you are. But do you know that? And do you believe that? And do you rest in that? Because this is the character of a servant. I live encouraged by Jesus Christ who loved me and gave his life for me. I live experiencing the love of God knowing that he loves me even though he knows the worst about me. He loves me and this fills my heart. I live knowing the participation, the word fellowship, the intimate fellowship of the Spirit of God who lives in me and possesses me. This is who I am. He's not exhorting believers to find these realities in their life. He's not telling them to strive to find some human potential to live out uh, the life that God wants them to live. These are not exhortations. These are statements of reality. The call to gospel character is not a call to self-effort or what we might call moralism. Paul isn't saying that if you're going to be like Christ, then muster up the discipline and muster up the self-will, and muster up the, the, the strength of mind to, to have the character you need. Paul's not saying that. He's saying this is who you are in Christ. If you're a believer, you have encouragement in Christ. If you're a believer, you have experience, you comfort by the love of God. If you're a believer then you have this fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The question is, who are you? Do you know who you are in Christ? Because if these things aren't working in your heart, either you've never been made alive in Christ, or you are really sick, you're sort of an anomaly, There's something unusual about you as a Christian because the usual character of a Christian is, 
I am encouraged in Christ. I am comforted by the love of God. I am I fellowship with and am sustained by the Spirit of God. Who are you? Who am I? When you wake up tomorrow morning, who are you? Are you a child of God, redeemed by the blood of Christ? Washed, as we sang, by the blood of Jesus Christ and cleansed. And now comforted by the love of God, encouraged by Jesus Christ and fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. This is your true experience. J.P. Moreland would say that the Christian who experiences the empty self, the Christian who is still narcissistic and infantile and living for self-gratification has something desperately wrong with him. There's a stunt in his growth. There's a sickness in his life. If he's truly a Christian, last week we saw... And we saw it again as we discussed this on Wednesday night. That the gospel brings to us the most passionate love. The deepest mercy. The most magnificent grace. The most undeserving forgiveness. And the greatest transforming power available in life. This is what the gospel brings us. And this is our cause, I said last week. But I say again this week, as I think about the gospel, yes, it brings us the most passionate love, the deepest mercy, the most significant grace, the most undeserving forgiveness, and the greatest transforming power. And this is what I have to define and to transform my life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It not only defines our cause, it transforms our character. Do I believe this? That in what God has done for me in Christ, I've experienced the most passionate love. I have the deepest mercy. I have the most magnificent grace. I enjoy the most undeserving forgiveness. And I experience the greatest transforming power. Is this mine in Jesus Christ? Who are you? Paul says we need to know who we are if we will have a gospel character developing in our life. But secondly, our text tells us that we must pursue gospel values, not cultural values. You will either live the life of an empty self, or as a servant of Jesus Christ, you will live the life of one who is emptied of self. Cultural values we know say it's all about me, what's good for me. You know, it's all about number one. I got to take care of number one. Those are cultural values. But they're not biblical values. J.P. Moreland would say that we have a choice as believers because of who we are in Christ that we can have an interior life of integrity, an interior life of virtue, 
an interior, an, an interior life of biblical morality. We, we can have this and we should pursue this because of who we are in Christ. We should fight the innate the tenden, tendency rooted in our depraved nature to make me the sole object of my affection and desire. We should choose to serve Jesus Christ and to serve others. Our text says in verse 3 that we should choose humility and the significance of others rather than competition and conceit. I think I shared with you before that I pastored one church that I came to realize they had a rule regarding uh, Sunday morning special music. They had a standing rule that two different people could not sing on the same Sunday morning in special music. And the reasoning was they did not want to hurt someone's feelings if someone sang better than they did. This is an evangelical church that believes the gospel. But that certainly is not a practice of the gospel. That is not what the gospel calls us to. It calls us to humility and the significance of others over competition and conceit. Every preacher should pray that the guy who follows him preaches better and pastors better and lives better. Every musician should pray and desire that other musicians would excel and do their best. We know that competition and conceit display themselves in different ways. People compare themselves to others, thinking too much of themselves. And often this is the root of conflict in a church, where there are people who have this, we say they're full of themselves. And they want to be up front. They want to be seen. They're always pushing forward. They want to be ahead. They want others to know what they've done and how much they've done. And this only causes conflict. But sometimes we miss the others who are also burdened with a lack of humility and this burden of competition and conceit. They're the ones who aren't pushing forward and pushing up front. They're the ones who are shrinking back. And they're isolated. They're sitting by themselves. Because they don't want to be feel like they're pushed down. There are those who are thinking, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I'm not as good as the next person. And others are saying, I'm better than anybody else. I can do it. But the root is the same in both of them. It's the lack of humility. The lack of a desire for the significance of others over myself. 
The gospel calls us not to be above others or to feel like we're below others. As you've heard me say before, having a cup of coffee on a patio with someone is, to me, a picture of the gospel. You're seated at the same table. You're at the same level. You're not on a pedestal. You're not underneath a pedestal. You are sharing life as equals together. The gospel calls us to humble engagement with others. Verse 4 tells us that we should choose to be concerned to be concerned about the interests of others. Now he's not diminishing, he tells us self-interest. He doesn't say don't care about yourself because that's what people do. We we do care. You should care. I mean, you brushed your teeth this morning, you took a shower, you put on clean clothes, at least I hope you did, unless you're wearing jeans, because a pair of jeans is good for a week at least. My daughter doesn't understand that, but that's just a fact of life. He's not diminishing the natural concern that we have for ourselves. Nobody has to tell you, care for yourself. You do that. But he's telling us that there is a legitimate concern that we ought to have for, for the interests of others, that we ought to be thinking about the good of others and thinking about how we can help not only ourselves flourish in life, but how do we help others flourish in life? And I think If we think about our interest in others, most of us think about it with perhaps sorrow and conviction. Because who did you pray for this week? Who did you care enough to pray for? Who did you call? Who did you give to because they had a need? This is gospel character. It's not all about me. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How are you investing your life for the glory of God, for the good of the gospel in the lives of others so that they are flourishing more in their life? Again, the empty self is a life that's consumed only with my interest. And ultimately, that person becomes one of the most miserable people on earth because serving your own interests only, seeking your own self-gratification only, is a bottomless pit. Because we don't find life by loving ourselves. We enjoy the life that God has for us by loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbors as we do ourselves. We choose humility 
We choose serving the interest of others. We choose to seek to display the mind of Christ in all of life. He says, which is yours if you're a believer? It's not something you need to get. It's something you need to live out. You need to respect and live it out in your life. We choose, we pursue gospel values. But thirdly, our text, and this is really the heart of the text, it calls us to pursue Christ as our ideal in life. Have this mind among yourselves. It's yours in Christ Jesus. This mind that is so wonderfully displayed in the incarnation of Christ. He wants us to be captured with the fact that God became man, lived on earth the life that we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die. And he did this willingly. He did this obediently. I like the way Diane Poitras put it. She said, the more a sinner sees the glory of Christ, the more he sees his own wretchedness and loves the merciful Savior. The more I look at Jesus and see myself in light of him, I see my sinfulness, my wretchedness. But the more I love him more, because he loves me even though he knows the very worst about me. Who do you really want to think like and be like in life? Some athlete, some celebrity, some successful business person. Who do you think about? You admire. You aspire to be. You dream. You wish if If only I could have what they have or do what they do or go the places they go. And you live in this world of fantasy. Who do you really want to be like? Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Think about the the flow of this text. Being in the form of of God. The particular word there for form means the outward expression that corresponds to the inward reality. So it's simply saying that Jesus Christ, if you could have seen him prior to his incarnation, 
if you could have watched him with the Holy Trinity in eternity, you would have seen in his outward form, whatever that is, you would have seen something that corresponded to who he really was inside. Everything about him would have declared, this is God. He lived in the form of God. And he did not think that equality with God was a thing to be grasped. Some would say to be grasped means it's something that he didn't need to hold on to. Others would say that it was something that he did not need to steal. He did not need to rob because it was rightfully his. I'll take the second view. Equality with God. I love sharing that with Jehovah Witnesses. Though being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You say Jesus is just a created human being, maybe the first, the highest of human beings. No, equal with God. You read through the Gospel of John a couple of times, the Jews take up stones to stone him. And the reason they give was because he made himself equal with God. He says to a lame man, take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath day. But first he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisee said, well, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And to show that he was God in the flesh, he then says to the lame man, take up your bed and walk. You're both forgiven and healed. At another point, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then the text says, Then the Jews took up stones to stone him, because he made himself equal with God. Because he is God. There are four statements that are always true about Jesus when you think of him in his incarnation. He is always truly God. He divested himself of nothing related to deity when he became man. He still remained fully God. He's always, in his incarnation, truly man. He's truly man and truly God in one person. There's not two people in Jesus. He takes on a human nature. From Mary, he gets a human nature. 
But the person in the incarnate Christ is the eternal Son of God. There's not two people. There's one person who takes on another nature. And then fourthly, when we think of Jesus in his incarnation, his deity and his humanity remain unmixed. They're always distinct. There's no merging together of his deity and of his humanity. Equal with God. He did not consider this something that he was taking unrightfully, that he was robbing. But it says he emptied himself. I think the New International Version translates it, he made himself nothing. But the older translations are more literal. He emptied himself. Of what or how did he empty himself? Well, the language of the text actually answers that question. He emptied himself taking on the form of a servant. And again, the word form, the outward expression of a servant, But it corresponds to the inward reality of who Christ was in his incarnation. He was truly a servant. He empties himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbles himself. He is like men in their humanness, but he is never like men in their sinfulness. He humbles himself. He, this is an act of self-deprecation. This is something that he chooses to do. This is not something that is imposed on him. He humbled himself. Throughout the Bible, we are called upon. Humble yourself. You might say, God, make me humble. You do it. No, God says, humble yourself. See who you really are as you stand before a holy and infinite God. See who you really are as you stand as a a sinner redeemed by the grace of God. See who you really are as one who was once an enemy of a holy God, and now, by his grace, you're a friend of God. See who you really are as a recipient of grace. Humble yourself. He humbled himself. And he became obedient unto death. Even unto the most shameful and painful death known to the world of that day, to the death of the cross. The height of his obedience is brought about at the extreme depth of his humiliation. He humbled himself. This is what the cross calls us to. 
Thomas Manton was a 17th century Puritan pastor who wrote some interesting things about overcoming a life of self-centeredness. I've uh, reworded just a couple of them in this way. He says we, because his language of uh, the 17th century is a little bit tough at times, we overcome self-dependence when we love Christ as the first cause of everything. If Christ is the first cause of everything, then I don't depend on me. I am not sovereign, but he is. I depend on him. Secondly, he says we overcome self-will when we love Christ as the highest Lord over all things. I overcome this desire that I must be in control. I must make my choice when I realize he is Lord. He is Lord. We overcome self-love when we love Christ as the chief good above everything. If he is who he is, if he is that chief good, then that draws me to love him instead of loving myself. Fourthly, we overcome self-seeking. When we love Christ as the last end, the ultimate goal of all things, if you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. It's like the Davis crest. You know, those family crests. That Welsh crest for the Davis family, historically, in Gaelic, says this at the top and bottom of the crest. In God, everything. Without God, nothing. Are you an empty self? If you are, it reflects itself in many ways, in every way in your life. If you're someone who is pursuing understanding who am I in Christ, what are gospel values, and how can I become more like Jesus Christ, it'll change every relationship you have in this world. Imagine a husband and a wife that are emptied of self. A marriage that is marked by humility, and love, and serving one another. You listen to couples who are fighting, and it's often about, I am not getting what I think I should be getting in marriage. When the Bible says, you're an empty self, it's all about you. Empty yourself! 
A young person who's emptied of self will love their parents and honor their parents. They will not live in isolation or pursue self-gratification, but will serve their family, will serve the church, will serve the world around them. Christians emptied of self will serve one another in humility and love and serve the needs of the church and the community and the world around them. They will be generous. They will take the gospel to a lost and dying world. A Christian emptied of self will love their enemies, will never live with revenge and with bitterness. The great missionary David Livingston was once asked about the great sacrifice that he had made as a missionary to Africa. And his response was simply this. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward? People looked at him giving up Riches and family and health and career for the gospel. And they say, look at all you sacrifice. And David Livingston would say, no, I am. I'm happy in Christ. I am satisfied in Christ. In serving others, I have found the life. Because if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, you will save it. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your amazing grace that takes wretched sinners like us and forgives and cleanses and begins a lifelong work of transformation in making us more like Jesus Christ. Father, help us to know who we are in Christ, to pursue gospel values, and to seek Christ, to love him, to honor him, to serve him above all things. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.